Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ladies and gentlemen, the following program is produced with a professional vengeance by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. Live from the soapily beautific hills of Encino, California, where industry and nature work hand in hand to create a better life for all of us. Is true crime uncensored? I am the legendary Burl Bear, Marie McKay. Hi there, Marie. Hello. Yeah, she also is an attorney, so watch out. So's our guest. Maybe you two can arbitrate yourselves into oblivion before the show's over. Howard Lapidus, executive producer of Celebrity Rehab, apparently is having difficulty dragging his body up the hill. <laughs> but I assume he'll show up sooner or later, and we have the duct tape just in case he does. Harry McLean. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Great to have you back. For those of you who uh, have perfect memories, uh, we had Harry on the show before talking about uh, the one, the uh, the past isn't dead until the fat lady sings or whatever. <laughs> what was the name of that book, Harry? Uh, the past is never dead. That's good enough. That's close, close, <laughs> yeah. close enough for government work. Right. And there was a lot of government work in that one. Absolutely. I uh, I was up quite late, as always, because I'm, I'm a writer, so I have no regular hours, uh, reading the new electronic edition of Once Upon a Time. And, uh, God, what a story. And uh, you're, you're the guy to tell it. Boy, you sure do in this book, which is available at a bargain price, uh, downloadable for whatever kind of ebook you have. I think it's for Kindle. Do you also have it for Nook, etc.? Uh, it's not on Nook, Nook yet, you know. Uh, Greg Olson just put up his Crime Rant mm -hmm. publishing site, and it's one of the first three books on that. So we're kind of, and he's got that hooked into Amazon. So I think we'll kind of go yeah, with well, that that's, for a while. That's where I got mine. I uh, Kindleized it. Uh a couple of days ago and sat down and read it and as usual of course your writing's brilliant the story is absolutely mesmerizing and uh you have some great great lines in the book many of them and this one really stands out san mateo county is not a good place to commit murder or miraculously to be tried for murder <laughs> what is it about san mateo that makes it a prosecutor's dream well it i mean it's a you know it's on that peninsula mm -hmm. south of san francisco <clears throat> which you tend to think of as kind of a silicon valley high string of, of upper class towns but it really is kind of blue collar and it's a small town and the judges and the prosecutors and the cops are a little community and mm -hmm. um you know, there's that old phrase of being hometown in there, but the the judge in the Franklin case was a former prosecutor, and so he had prosecuted cases involving the two cops oh. that we were investigating, and the the defense lawyer was from San Francisco, and he just kind of walked into a into a machine, I think. There. Well, this case, this story is so fascinating for people who aren't familiar with it. If you want to kind of like, I don't know where you want to start, <laughs> but whether you want to start with the woman suddenly having a horrific flash. She's there playing with her daughter, and suddenly a repressed memory from years ago comes into her consciousness. Right. Anyway. 1989, Eileen Franklin, a housewife who lived uh, in Southern California at the time, uh, recovered a memory of her father murdering her playmate 20 years earlier in Foster City. The playmate, Susan Mason, had been killed. Her body had been found 20 years earlier, but there had never been a prosecution. Susan and Eileen were close friends. She, her, Eileen's daughter did bear a striking resemblance to, to Susan, and Eileen said she was standing there one day looking at her daughter, 
and all of a sudden, in her mind, she visualized her father, George Franklin, the fireman, bringing a rock down on Susan's head. They were up in the hills and smashing and killing her. After well, he he sexually abused her first, according to the memory, and then killed her and threatened to uh, kill Eileen if she told anybody what she said. So, I, so supposedly she represses this memory for 20 years. Yeah, and it pops up. It pops up in in you know video fashion. I mean, just as clear and clean as you might as you might uh, hope for. And and the cops, uh, the cops believed her uh, just flat out. They just they just bought the story. And uh, well, is it wasn't one reason it was easy to buy the story, despite the fact her father had no history of of doing anything weird with kids. That the father was a real ass. Yeah, I mean, and she was very very convincing. She's very dramatic. Very sincere, very intense, uh, almost charismatic, and, and there was no question but that George Franklin, it didn't take long for the cops to get into his history and find out what a uh, unsavory human being he had been. What was her relationship with her father prior to making this allegation about him? Well, it, it was back and forth, and this was kind of the, the, the irony of it. She was kind of grew up... All the other sisters said that, uh, her sister said that the father sexually abused them. Um, Eileen said he didn't abuse her, but that she was his favorite. But then they would have falling, fallings out, and they wouldn't see each other for four or five years, uh, and they would get back together. As a matter of fact, oh, three or four years before this incident uh, came about, before the memory was recovered, they had kind of reconciled, and Eileen had walked in on the room and seen her father sexually abusing her, I think, about 18-month-old daughter. Oh, my God. And still maintained a relationship with him oh after my God. that. Well, the, the whole family is horrifyingly dysfunctional, no matter how you look at it. The relationship between the father and the mother isn't exactly exemplary. No, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it is a classic American dysfunctional family. He's an alcoholic. Uh, he's kind of a brutish, not uneducated guy. She is more educated, more sophisticated, but completely intimidated and cowed by him. And this, when this was going on, they, they, you know, there, there really wasn't this movement in America for... She always explained the fact that she let her children get sexually abused and beaten by George saying, I didn't have a choice. Yeah. And in some sense, she didn't back in those days. It's not like today where you have the... Uh, a lot of support systems for for abused or you know uh, violated wives. Back then, she didn't see any choice, so she was very very passive. And in fact, some of the kids ended up hating her for her acquiescence in the violence in the home than more her than they did the father. Well, the, she, Eileen didn't have much use for her mother. She thought she was a useless bitch, if I remember correctly. Yeah, she. I mean, she absolutely hated her. He said all, all mom did was sit around wearing the same dress all the time, never did anything, never was never proactive for the defense of the kids whatsoever. Yeah, and she was a she was a lawyer, and uh, she ended up going to law school in San Mateo County and, and having a having a practice. But all of these relationships between all these people were very, very variable, up and down, hate, love. I mean, you know, if one moment they're together, the next minute they hate each other, and it's it was. Uh, it was it, it was something to get caught up in myself. I got kind of traumatized getting in the middle of that family. Well, this this guy George, the father. I mean, it's very easy to despise him. When you, I mean, reading reading the book, 
I mean, he was a fireman, and as you point out, women usually said hello to a man in a fireman's uniform, and George made the most of their trust. He hit on any woman who came into view. He'd go into a bar, and he'd start at one end and work his way to the other, <laughs> simply walking up to a woman and saying, hey, you want to fuck? This is Howard. It's ha uh, Harry, how you doing, Howard? I, I, I uh, kind of get caught in L.A. traffic, but I'm here, and, and um, let me ask you something really quick. Let's cut to the chase. Did he do it? You know, I, I was never able to give a straight answer to that because, first of all, the problem with the case was there was no corroborating evidence of this memory at all. It was the only thing that pointed toward him. There was no forensics. There was no other witnesses. The whole case stood or fell on Eileen's memory, and it changed every time she told the story. So the way as close as I could come to saying was he, he should not have been convicted on that evidence. Whether he did it, he was a very, very... A bad man who I think was capable of something like that, but it was, but, 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 but to, but to actually base a conviction solely on that memory. But you get a kid whose inner dialogue coming, coming, um, you know, out of a house like that where there was a lot of craziness, and, and you, I know you've established that the household was kind of nuts. Um, now it's 20 years later. And she's had this inner dialogue running in her head, and this is just me speculating that it's changed so many times. And she's had, you know, she, you know, the love-hate relationship with her father, but then the the fear of her father, did that create? And then, you know, then knowing what she kind of knew about the case, because over time, well, she read everything in the paper. It was too. all there. Uh, yeah, she she would claim that she still loved her father, and this was very hard for her to do, for her to come forward. It was part of her tragic uh, character that she portrayed so that she put out there so well that she still loved her father but but the trauma that went on in the household was absolutely real and what that does to somebody's perception to somebody's memories to somebody's recollection of of their own childhood or what happened is uh, is really not very much understood but it's one of the things she did on the stand that was so amazing was they had her telling different stories all the time. And normally when you do that, the defense lawyer goes after the person and says, well, on this day you said this, and that day you said this. How do you reconcile this? The more the defense lawyer, Horngrad, went after her on the stand, and the more she cried and got angry and flashed out at him, the more she verified that her father had beaten and abused her and made her sympathetic to the jury and more believable to the jury. Despite the, the fact there's nothing in his past to indicate uh, him actually having a uh, uh, the type of thing that would, where he would smash some little kid's head in with a rock. Right. You know, I th he said something that came up in the newspaper, and it was, I think, one paper carried it, and it was very perceptive, I thought, on his part. And as he said, he was innocent, and that the abuses he had committed on his family had led them to either dream, imagine, fantasize, or fabricate that I murdered Susan Nason in order that they could vent their rage. Well, maybe he's right. Maybe. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, I mean, I, that, that's absolutely the possibility. I mean, I never knew whether Eileen believed i in the end i believed that she believed what she was saying that she believed the memory to be valid i was suspicious of that for a while but 
in the end, I, I, I do believe she actually believed that she saw it, and she might well have, but there was no science to support it. Harry, I'm the least qualified guy yeah. here. At the, you know, we've got one, two, two lawyers, two uh, uh, writers, and then a, a disc jockey from Buffalo. And I, <laughs> I'm the disc jockey. Uh, he's, so he's close to the psychopath angle. But I got to tell you, there you're right. But but I got to tell you, I why do I think I could have got this guy off based on the evidence that didn't exist? Well, there, was, I mean, there was no evidence. I mean, let's go back. It's almost parallel to Casey Anthony to a certain extent. What well, they got in, though, what they got in was the evidence of him sexually abusing his two daughters. Okay. And they got that in. I forget that that evidentiary rule. You're not supposed to, you know, to bring uh, past yeah. incidents in. But they very cleverly got it in. And once the jury heard that, you could look at them. And watch their faces. Once they heard the details oh, of the sexual a, abuse, he was finished. Of course, he's a scumbag. But I don't know, yeah. in my closing argument, I would have addressed that. I mean, you know, the guy's not a good guy. You know that, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. You know you, we've got evidence that shows he's not a good guy. But you show me the evidence that he actually did this to this other person. Doesn't exist. Right. And that's what, that's what the defense lawyer did say. And when I interviewed the jurors later... It was two of them flat out admitted to me that if he hadn't done this murder, he had done enough other bad things to his own no. children. That yeah, he but you don't. That, that's uh, but that's you know you but can't. That's the problem with the jury. If they don't like who's up for trial, right. They're going to convict. That's right, and that that was a strange thing in the Casey Anthony thing. That that juror who got up and I saw her testify uh, or give a give a comment. Mm -hmm. She. Acted like she, you know, she she bought that statement by the defense lawyer. If you don't have, you know, the the uh, the if they, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt, and if we can't prove death, how can we prove who did it? If the glove doesn't she, fit, you, you must, must acquit. acquit. That's you, right. You know, here we go. But the, that's the that's the you know. Call, is this that is a, America. Is yeah. that a loophole in the American system, Harry? <laughs> Well, I don't know. I mean, they just could not get this jury to look at be, at the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt and stick with it. Twenty years if they later, had, they, if they had done that, they would have had to acquit him. Well, thank thank God the uh, the uh, higher courts took one look at this. Now, here's something that yeah, I yeah, but I, hang on a second, yeah. okay? This is this also gets back to Casey Anthony thing, bro. bro I, I see where you're going, but thank God they, you know, justice prevailed for him for George, and he got out after six years. Devin, yeah, right, or whatever it was, right. Well. But did he? That's why I went right to Harry and said, "Did he do it?" You know, there's nobody closer to this case than Harry. Did he do it? <laughs> I wish I could give you know. My gut tells me that he probably did because I think he was a drunk and he was violent and he sexually abused his own children. It's not that big a leap right. to say that you know when he sexually abused this girl up in the mountains, he realized that she, if he took her home, she was going to tell her parents. Is, is he still alive or dead right now? He's alive. That's, okay, so he's, yeah, so he's walking around. This is a guy that smashed somebody. We game. don't. It's allegedly, but has yeah, he done anything yeah, like that he, since? Uh, you don't know. <laughs> he got away with it for twenty years. How, how, that's a question I've got for you, Harry. Why did it take twenty? How did these guys, the the, the cops up there? Well, it's because she came up with this phony repressed memory that wasn't true. No, no, no. But she came up with it twenty years later. There, twenty years. This this was an unsolved murder. Yeah, it just it just sat out there, and they you know. Franklin, they did not even look at Franklin back then. I thought they he, questioned it. I thought I read that he They quit. questioned it, but he lived right around the corner. He was off that day as a, you know, his, on his fireman's job. Uh, and they kind of talked to him a little bit, but, but they didn't push it, you know. Mm -hmm. they, they, they didn't actually 
do a do an investigation of, of him. They were convinced it was somebody from outside Foster City who came in and picked her up. The one, one thing that, or more than one thing that, that really bothered me about the, the, the trial was that the prosecution says there's no way that she could tell us these details unless she'd been there. And yet, it was all in the newspaper, and the mistakes that were in the newspaper were the same mistakes she said on the stand. But they wouldn't let the newspaper evidence in. And that was one of the, that was one of the, you know, that's where I think the judge kind of went along with the, with the, with the theory of it, uh, of the prosecution's case. And that was one of the grounds for the reversal. Um, the, the district court and the court of appeals held that that evidence was clearly relevant because the prosecution kept saying it in there. You know, there's no way she could have known this. There's no way she could have known it. And if they say that, then the defense has to be allowed to come in and say, yes, there is a way. She could have read the newspapers. Right. And what really got me was the newspaper had mistakes, and she testified to the mistakes and not the truth. Right. I I think that has something to do with with the The rings. The rings on the girl's finger. Yeah, Yeah. and she repeated exactly what was in, I think, either the Foster City or or the San Mateo County. Now, in the preliminary hearing, Eileen also changed the time of the murder from mid morning to late afternoon. George Franklin couldn't have picked up Susan in the morning, as she first reported, because Susan had gone to school that morning. Can't get home from school like about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Right, right. I mean, uh, <laughs> the story kept changing. So why would she be believable? I mean, anybody else who, got to, who gets up there and makes those many changes in their story where you can show that she changed it once she learned facts that didn't fit it, you know, they're, they're shot. I mean, their credibility should be out the window. And yet they went along with it. She was. I mean, you you, have, did, you actually have to have seen her testify. I mean, it was so powerful. She had that courtroom and that jury, the judge, the reporters in the palm of her hand. I mean, she it, it was a it was a magnificent performance. And you kind of just let your reasoning go. And you thought, ah, you know, that woman's got to be telling the truth. Look at the pain she's in. So, do you think she she believed it, or was it absolute? She wanted to just get, you know, she was just so tortured for years and years and years by her father. Was that her lashing out? Well, you know, I think she did believe it. If you look at, you know, the the psychology, I spent some time trying to analyze her kind of on my own in the book. And the psychologist will say when somebody's in that situation, you need to look at what their secondary gain is, what she got out of it. She got fame, fortune, um notoriety from this but I still don't think that drove her to actually create the story out of whole cloth but she certainly she was you know it it fit her personality to uh, it gave her some motivation to kind of cook up this story I mean she was on Oprah, she was, you know, in 60 Minutes, I mean, all this stuff, and that she was that sort of personality Yeah, but talk to me about the differences between your book and her book well, her book is written with a guy by the name of William Wright, and it's they write they write them back and forth. And she wanted to write a book with me uh, originally, and later claimed that I had misled her on it. But um, the problem with her book is that she had absolute editorial control over everything. <laughs> so what she wrote and what the other quote journalist uh, wrote 
Uh, I put the quotes around journalists. Yeah, I mean, if you if you write something and the person you're writing about has editorial control over it, what does that make you? I I don't know. Certainly not not a journalist. Secretary. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but it was a big. It was kind of. Um, there was. She was. They. 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 They made a movie of her book too, and it was. It was a TV movie, and it was horrible. Shelley uh, Duvall, not Shelley Duvall. Who was the, who was the woman in Cheers? Shelley Long. Shelley Long played her, and it was a disaster. You yeah. can imagine Shelley Long trying to play this, a character like that. Was um, it on Lifetime? Um, <laughs> it sounds like a Lifetime. Probably. Movie. I think it's being shown on Lifetime now. Yeah. But, 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 the, but the book was kind of like a, it was a long pain to her tragedy and how sad she had suffered. You know, that was, but and actually she gave me a lot of information in there that I didn't know mm-hmm. uh, in which I kind of piggybacked into my book. I shouldn't admit that. But I mean, she admitted a lot of facts in there. The one thing I found out that nobody knew, including the defense, was that she had an arrest for prostitution and oh. cocaine use? See, now and we're talking. <laughs> now it gets no, interesting. No, no, now see, we now have to take talking. we have to take a sixty-second break. We're with Harry McLeod and his fantastic book, Once Upon a Time. We'll be right back on True Crime Uncensored. There are some things in life that just don't go together. But listen to this. You take one drop-dead gorgeous woman. You add an incredibly wealthy, handsome man. You put them together. They have all the money, clothes, jewels, drugs, alcohol they could possibly want. Well, then you throw in a Glock 9mm handgun. It's all good fun until someone gets killed. Fatal Beauty, the shocking true story of beautiful Rhonda Glover, who put 13 bullets from a Glock 9mm into her boyfriend of 15 years, Jimmy Jost. Oh, she said he was abusive. The friend said he was passive. Either way, he was dead. Fatal Beauty, available January 2011 from Pinnacle True Crime by Burl Bear, living legend, true crime author, and trust me, he's brilliant, I know it, because I am Burl Bear, author of Fatal Beauty. If you own an iPhone or ride the plastic pony in front of Kroger, you are no longer tied to your computer. You are now free to roam and take Outlaw Radio with you everywhere you go. Grab an Outlaw Radio iPhone application, the smoking, drinking, interrupting, did I say interrupting? 24-hour party that you follow. Now follows you. Your iPhone is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends at Outlaw Radio, like me. Change the way you listen to the radio seven days a week, now available at the iTunes App Store. Back to True Crime Uncensored with Burl Bear and Howard Lapidus, featuring Mark C.G. Boyer. And sometimes Marie Mackey, Esquire. <laughs> produced by Magic Matthew Allen. Who in turn is produced by Laurie Downey Jr. And now some of the aforementioned true crime uncessors. It's very complex uh, statement for Matt to make. Uh, talking to Harry McLean, author of the uh, several incredible books, the second time we've had Harry on the show. This uh, one's Once Upon a Time. Not Once Upon a Time in the West. <laughs> Once Upon a Time in the Repressed, I guess. Uh, Harry, I came across an article written by uh, a psychologist or a psychiatrist who testified uh, for the defense 
in this trial. I think this was in Cosmopolitan magazine. You're probably familiar with it. A uh, person got up and testified. And they, they talked about a study that they had conducted where they... Uh, 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 where the subjects watched a film of a robbery involving a shooting and were then exposed to a television account of the event that contained erroneous details. When asked to recall what happened during the robbery, many subjects incorporated the erroneous details from the television report into their own eyewitness account. Right. Now, once something gets into someone's mind, it all kind of... We like to think our memory is good, but our memory is very malleable. You know, and we've always known that. I mean, we always know that our memory is a changing kind of creative process. There's no science to ever say that what that that when you witness something, particularly a traumatic event, that even the next day you'll be able to tell it the same way you would have the day. And a year later, it's going to be different. Two years later, it shifts. Did you, you remember? Did, did you see? I, I saw this uh, thing that Elizabeth Loftus put out there. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, this piece of, um, I think a slideshow, I think nine slides, showing a car running somebody over, and uh, I got everything wrong. <laughs> That's and, amazing. And, no, yeah. it, it's it's amazing. How I sat and I watched the slides. Uh, it's it's online. Look up Loftus, and you watch the slides, and then you at the end there's a test. And the the whole thing, I'm going to, you know, spoiler alert, but it's the yield sign. And I never saw it. Mm -hmm. I thought it was a stop sign. But the way they set it up, right. you think it's a stop sign, but it's a yield sign. Therefore, the person ran the person down and shouldn't have. And, you, yeah. <laughs> and then they've got all this other stuff that are, it's all erroneous stuff that never entered into she the was one of the, She was one of the very few psychologists or psychiatrists who would come forward in 1990 and question the reliability of repressed memories. And she was tarred and feathered for it. She was drummed out of the American Psychological Association. Now it's all turned around. Now yeah. the whole science is turned on it, and she's kind of the, the top of the heap now. She's everywhere. She was never, but she was never wrong. I mean, in learning about her now, and, and, and then, you know, seeing a 20-year arc on, on her, on Elizabeth Loftus, who's a, a psychologist from Bel Air, California, and studied repressed memory and, you know, laid into this case, the, uh, uh, you, know, the, you know, the case we're talking about, it's just incredible how right she is. And that's why I question, you know, did he or did he not do it based on the repressed memory? Forget about it. Impossible. If you base it on the evidence in that case, you would have to say he didn't do it. Impossible to say he did it. Impossible. Now, do I think he did it also after what I've read and the, <laughs> the, the excerpts from your book that I've, I've read? And I'll read the whole thing and, and look forward to it. But it's, it's my goodness. Yeah, the guy's not a nice guy. No, but that, you see, then Casey Anthony's not a nice girl. Okay, yeah. but I, you know, I got her convicted in my head, and there's a jury of 12 that said no. Yeah. Well, it's like we were talking about last week. Do you want a, a justice system that uh, acts like an outraged victim, or do you want a justice system that's based on facts and evidence? The outraged victim. I <laughs> yeah. 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 That's why you get a lot of people yeah, who didn't you know. do it in prison. Well, look what we have now. We get a lot of people that didn't do a lot of things in prison. But, but well, this one here, Harry, is what must have really been something to follow. Uh, how did you, uh, you know, I know this this case had some profile, but what provoked you for, to go and really dig this one up and really make a cause to live out of it? Well, as a, as a lawyer, I mean, I've, I was never a trial lawyer or a criminal lawyer, but 
anytime the law intersects with with you know social science, whether it's or psychiatry or sociology or psychology, it's it's interesting to me. And this one, you know, automat- if you spend half an hour researching it, you'll find that this theory of repressed memories doesn't is was not widely accepted in the psychiatric community, yet they were taking it into a court of law and attempting to present yeah, how did it, it as pass scientific the fry, How did it pass the Fry test? They had this woman, uh, Lenore Tear. Um, she was a psychiatrist. I think she taught somewhere in, in San Francisco. I don't remember. And she came in and spun out this theory of how repressed memories work, type 1 trauma, type 2 trauma. She had it all laid out. When you asked her if there was any basis for this, if there was any studies for her theory, she didn't have any, but she was a kind of like Eileen in the sense that she was a captivating storyteller. Loftus gets up there and comes at it from a science point of view and says there is no science for this. The jury liked Lenore Terre. They did not like Loftus. And George went after uh, Terre uh, for, yeah, for, I mean, for conspiracy. I mean, which uh, uh, oh he yeah he sued he sued Terran he sued Terran Barrett. Um, Terran Barrett for conspiracy yeah and somebody else too I forget but they all it it, it all got thrown out yeah. it didn't get anywhere they usually do yeah it was and I know Horngrad the guy who represented him uh, wouldn't wouldn't have anything to to do with it but Terran has since been um, somewhat discredited I mean you don't you know you don't hear when you when the courts come up with repressed memory cases now. You don't see her name on the list of witnesses. <laughs> kind of like the uh, McMartin case, huh? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Exactly. We'll bring up the McMartin no, case on a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> God, that's disgusting, Los too. Angeles at well, you know, after I, after I saw that case, I was, you know, I don't have children, but I go to, the, to my, uh, I have friends who have children. I go to dinner at their house. Sometimes I go, I would go, you know, ride a bike with them or play a game in the basement. I was terrified that one of these days, you know, they were going to come up with a repressed memory that I couldn't rebut. You know, that some, they were going to get in therapy for bulimia or something, and they were going to hit one of these therapists uh, and say, you know, if you're oh, yeah, screwed Uncle, up. Uncle, here's, Uncle Harry did it. Yeah, I'm I mean, certain. somebody somebody was abusing you when you were a kid, and you repressed but, it, and you that's know, why I, your life is I've, I've yelled at my kids. It's just it's something you do. It's just because the law says you have to, because you have to yell at kids. You don't understand. <laughs> and and um, But I fear, you know, as, as time goes on, my, and my daughter, who's 16 and a half now and going through some issues, and I'm sitting here going, wow. What's going to come out? You know, uh, I did yell at her. Never laid a hand on her. Yeah. Well, but, you know th- that that's kind of turned too. But it's still that in that time period, I remember a study that was published by the American Association of University of Women that said three out of every five men are child sexual abusers, and it was reprinted yeah. without question in all the media. Well, that's I, the I kind have, of I'd have a question about that. So there's that. three of us here on the phone. That's <laughs> right. Uh, so at least and, one of them. And, and, I mean, and Marie, thank goodness, uh, is, is probably the one that's guilty. <laughs> well, you know. Yeah, well, we, we, everyone needs a hobby, Marie. Yeah, something. I know. But, you know, no, but, me... I mean, I will admit this, okay? Because the, what? what are you admitting to now? I'm going to admit that my daughter, yeah. after I had a really heavy-duty session with her, went to school and said that I yelled at her and I grabbed an, and I grabbed her. And threw her down. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, on her life, it, that didn't happen. Okay. But what happens then is they, they hear it in the school. And then 
all, they've got to fill out a report. Yeah. And off it goes to uh, whatever. Wherever. Child services. services. Yeah. Yeah, but it, it never got there because what happened is these the. the the, uh, the counselor in school said, we have to go to her psychologist first. Yeah. All together. And uh, I go in there and found out that she really believed that I did, but then knew that I didn't. Mm-hmm. And watching that process, I'm sitting there going, oh, my God. You know, you say, what can happen? And then I'm looking at this case and go, what, what goes what, through the yeah. minds of a kid? Right. And this thing, and, and we're fine now, and everything's under control, and she's in therapy, and, and it had nothing to do with me. But it's just it goes to show you that what, what can happen to a kid and how, the, again, I talk about their inner voice. Their inner voice talks to them and says some weird stuff. Well, in, in this case, uh, uh uh, Harry, on with with Eileen Franklin, not only does she accuse her her father of killing once, she comes up with a couple other murders. Yeah, and that never got in front of the jury. She came up with two other murders, which were preposterous. I mean, they they could not have they they could not have happened the way she said it. And the detectives went out and uh, established that either either you know she wasn't there or the year was off or the man was black when it should have been white or you know whatever but they that one of those happened after the conviction uh, and one of them happened before but the jury never heard that she was kind of walking around finding these murders so but we've got a narcissist to the ninth power here right i kind of yeah. a narcissist and i had i kind of described her i i thought i think she's a borderline i mean i'm not a psychologist but uh She's, she fits kind of a borderline personality, and that is she's, you know, dramatic, mm-hmm. uh, hysterical. She kind of, you can never, you can never give her enough, you know. She's never going to get enough love, enough praise, and uh, always But you, you don't think she's bipolar. Who knows? You know? Right. By the way, I must uh, congratulate myself on how I got my my own story into this. I'm very yes. proud of you how you did that. Yeah, I'm, you, I'm accused of doing that on a weekly basis, and, and, and he usually prides himself on it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's amazing that giving that false account of some other murders that couldn't have happened, that the police didn't think she was unreliable at that point. Yeah, well, they they were already you know they were already way invested by then. I mean, that was just right. They found one of them right before they. Uh, trial started, and there was no way they could back out at that point. They, you know, there there was a national media attention, and they were too far down. The yeah, they're track. already but, too far into it. Too far, I, too far I, into I almost, it to deal I, with the truth. I almost think that had they found out early, they probably would have gone ahead with this and found some way to rationalize excusing those two murders. This is the one that's you know this is the one that's the, true. The, the one that's true. The other two right. are lies, and she's making it all up and took it out of the newspaper. But uh, thank, thank, uh, thank American Justice that someone took a good look at this case afterwards on appeal. There were so many violations of what's supposed to happen in a court of law that putting aside the repressed memories issue entirely, just looking at everything else that was wrong... Yeah, they didn't. When they first of all, it's interesting to note that the federal it it was upheld through the state courts in California. Uh, it got to a federal district court judge whose name escapes me, but I know he was a Reagan Meese appointee, a fairly conservative guy, who was the first one who took a cold look at this thing and said, you know, there, there's this serious errors here, and then it was upheld by the by the Court of Appeals. But, I mean, in this case, thank God there was a federal court. Well, yeah, I, I have their, their thing right in front of me from the appeals court. 
Uh, they granted his petition for habeas corpus based on several constitutional errors. Uh, she she went to visit her father in jail, and they they used uh, her visit to the father in jail, their conversation uh, against him, uh, which is wrong. Well, because here's what he did. He 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 didn't say anything. That's right. And he pointed to the camera and said, you know, made the the motion that this is being recorded. So he didn't say anything. And the judge instructed the jury that they could take that as an admission of guilt. Incredible. Isn't that amazing? And not get over not get overturned in the state court. Yeah, for doing that's that? the, that's you know as much as the the more I read about this guy, the more I, I didn't like him for this murder. Yeah, the prosecutor's uh, statement in her closing argument that Franklin's silence in the face of his daughter's accusation quote was worth its weight in gold. Right. As an implied admission of guilt compounded the error, as in the court's instruction that Franklin's silence. I just was couldn't admission figure the guilt. math on that, bro. It doesn't make any sense. It violates everything about American law that I know. It violates the Fifth Amendment. And the right to counsel. Was the because judge? She had counsel. Was the judge ever disciplined? Smith? No. I mean, he 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 was never disciplined for this, and he's since off the bench. And he always appeared to be a reasonable guy. But if you take that ruling in the exclusion of the newspaper articles, yeah, you can see a pretty a pretty biased. Uh, oh, yeah, I'd say yeah. so. Judge there, you yeah. Know? I mean, um, there were uh, enough uh, egregious violations of the United States Constitution <laughs> in this case that I'm surprised that, that it even went as far as it did. Well, here's, here's the irony. They could have gotten, they would have convicted Franklin if they had let the newspaper evidence in and if she had not testified about going to visit her father. I talked to enough of those jurors. When they heard the sexual abuse evidence, he was sunk. So that's kind of yeah. the prosecutor's mistake. They over-prosecuted it. They put evidence in that, that you know, jeopardized the conviction, and they should have known it. Oh, I've well, seen that happen before. They get carried away, or they try to link up a, a common scheme or plan on things right. that aren't connected. They go crazy. But, Harry, didn't her sister testify or, or make the report something that she knew maybe five years before the repressed memory situation? She did, yeah. She went to the to the police for, well, when they were it was about four or five years before and she didn't, you know, she didn't claim repressed memory. She just said she was right. suspicious of it, but she didn't have any evidence. She had no evidence, so that got that got thrown under well, the Well, the right. sisters didn't get along all that well, and there was a little bit of a falling out, and that helped, too. I There's mean, nobody in this family who got along, bro. No. no. <laughs> and that, see, that's, that's the irony of that. That's the ultimate irony of this thing, is that Eileen brought herself down because they were getting ready to retry Franklin. They, they had to do it, you know, politically. I don't think they were that hot to do it anymore in 1995. The, situ- the context, the social context had changed, but they were going to go ahead, and they had filed on him again, same charges. And Janice calls up Eileen, who's, who's living up in the San Juan Islands, and Eileen doesn't return her phone call. So Janice calls up again, and Eileen says, hey, I'm up here. I'm done with you. I'm done with that family. Don't ever bother me again. You do not talk to Janice that way. Janice calls up the prosecutor, leaves a message on tape saying, hey, guess what? We were both in hypnosis when Eileen recovered the memory. Oops. Yeah, let's talk about hypnosis in California. <laughs> we got to take a 60-second break. So watch the watch go back and forth for 60 seconds. We'll be right back on True Crime Uncensored.
Barbara Opal promised her 14-year-old daughter a brand-new dirt bike if she'd murder her employer. You know that. It's my book, Mom Said Kill. The kid didn't get the dirt bike. Well, guess what? The book is now available as a digital download from Barnes & Noble. Mom Said Kill by Burl Bear, the new digital edition. And you know what? Even in the digital edition, the kid still doesn't get the dirt bike. Mom Said Kill by me, Burl Bear, and I will love me to pieces. If you own an iPhone or ride a plastic pony in front of Albertsons, you are no longer tied to your computer. You are now free to roam while Barstow's burning and take Outlaw Radio with you everywhere you go. Grab an Outlaw Radio iPhone application, the smoking, drinking, interrupting 24-hour party that you follow now follows you. Your iPhone is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends at Outlaw Radio. Change the way you listen to the radio seven days a week. Now available in the iTunes App Store. Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Welcome back to True Crime Uncensored. I am the legendary Burl Bear. Got Howard Lapidus, executive producer, celebrity rehab, manager to the star. <laughs> the buxom bereave. <laughs> What? That's what she's referred to on the website as the brilliant and buxom. Uh, I, haven't seen, I, haven't, I haven't seen that part. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's well, great. Let's talk about our guest. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to mention your book, Harry, as long as we're talking about it, because uh, if you if you have a Kindle or if you have a computer, you can get this book. It's uh, it's remarkably inexpensive. I think it costs me like three fifty nine or four thirty eight or something like that. Four sixty, three sixty, yeah. Yeah, a bargain, a bargain, great entertainment bargain. And if you don't have a Kindle, that's okay. You can download it to your PC and read it right on your computer screen, uh, which I did. And uh, it's a fabulous book, and uh, as all your books Remember are. there used to be, uh, we were talking about newspapers. Maybe some people that may not know what we're talking about. What a newspaper is? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can read newspapers on your Kindle as well. Yes, you can. And uh, you were mentioning you wanted to ask uh, Harry something about uh, one of his other brilliant books, if I my memory says. I, I've got a lot, a lot to ask Harry about it because I found, you know, the books aside, you've got a pretty interesting life, and it, I was fascinated by how you've gone... Uh, you know, through your your life uh, as a uh, as a lawyer, but then a writer, and and uh, and how you spent time. First of all, uh, your book uh, in broad daylight was also made into a movie. I was just wondering if you liked that movie better than you liked the one that uh, uh, Elizabeth's uh, folks made. The show well, yeah, I do because I had a cameo role. <laughs> oh, that makes all the difference. Oh, wow. <laughs> no, that was a great movie. That starred Brian Dennehy as the bully. In Northwest Missouri, he was shot to death on the main street of town, and Marcia Gay Harden played his wife, and Chris Cooper played the state patrolman. Oh, he's great. Stood up to him, so yeah. we had some wit. And, yeah, uh, good cast in that one. Chorus Leachman was in there, too, so yeah. it was a it was a great movie, and it was a lot of fun to watch him shoot. Hey, did you make some good bucks off of that one? Uh, yeah, you know, but next time... I'm going to get one of these uh, assistant producer or assistant writer thing because they get the royalties. This wow. thing is being showed in Japan, you know, they in Germany, and I, you know, they, they with the author they just they buy the rights to the book, and that's it. So. Yeah, they bought you out. That, that's no, you need more than that. But that's, that's right. That's, I agree. That's Next what time, I, that, Paul that's, Howard. That's what I do for a living. But the the, the um, a real living. The the 
the, the question I well, the, what I found fascinating is you wrote uh, in, in broad daylight, it, but you had moved. For, you've moved a couple times in your life, a few times in your life. But you, you moved from from Denver, being in a, you had a practice going, and you said, "The heck with that! I'm moving to Skidmore, Missouri. I'm going to write. I'm going to figure out how to knock the walls of this town down and figure out how to write a book." And yeah. this one, I, I you know, I had I've not read this book yet. I, but I, you know, when I started learning about you, I, I stumbled on this book, and I can't wait to read this book. Well, they were, you know, just to go over the facts, this is Ken, Ken Rex McElroy, who right. terrorized all of northwest Missouri for 20 years. Bad guy. Robbing, raping, guy. murdering, arson, got away with everything. Law enforcement, judges, juries were totally terrified of him, would not prosecute him. Finally, it all comes to, comes to, uh, to a head in, in July of 1981. The town stands up to him. Uh, they face him down on the main street, and two guys go for their guns and shoot him. And front of 40, at least forty-five witnesses. Um, Not bad. State, <laughs> no county, one saw a thing. <laughs> yeah. County grand jury, state, state grand jury, yeah. federal grand jury. The, all these farmers get up there, raise their right hand, and say, "I didn't say a thing." I, I did see not a thing. see a thing. <laughs> and you come into town, and, and I want to ask in a second why that caught your eye. But you find your way into town, and nobody would talk to you because they were suspicious that you could be undercover in the trying to crack the veneer and figure out, you know, who who the shooters were. Yeah, they were they were absolutely paranoid because everybody knew who the shooters were. But it was going to take somebody to, with some credibility, to you know raise their hand, and I saw it. And they had had undercover cops. They had, the FBI looked into this thing for nine months, and they couldn't get one of these people to talk. It's amazing. So they were, it was like us against the world when I walked in there, and it was um, a pretty grim situation. I got. I got my tires slashed. I got bit by a dog. I got a dog sicked on me. But and, you hung uh, in. You hung in. You, you, you had the persistence to hang in there through all of this. Yeah. Well, you know, pretty soon in 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 all. I don't know about you, Burl, but in all the books that I've written, there there always comes to be somebody that's an ally mm-hmm. uh, on the inside that's, of the story. That's absolutely true. For one reason or another, um, they take up your cause. Yeah. And in this case, there was a couple of people who, who did it. One was the grocer's daughter that McElroy shot, and the other was this Gosley family that I, that I lived with. Mm-hmm. And they kind of started opening a lot of doors for me. And then, you know, by the time the thing was over, I was judging the dance contest at the <laughs> show. And, this guy be and the dog fast. show. You could and run the two for killers, it. I remember standing up there watching the two killers dance in front of me with their wives going, my God, what's this world come to? Yo, you could have run for mayor down there. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> yeah, but but uh, how did you, with the Gosleys, how, how did you, how did that work? How, how did they, a prominent family in town, and you, you're this black sheep that wanders in. It's kind of like an old western, you know, you mosey into town. And and now, what? How did you endear yourself to these people of high, higher profile? Well, they had a son that had done some research on this book, and he was kind of a little McElroy himself, and, and not certainly not capable of writing anything. And uh, but they said, if you'll help him out, um, we'll you know we'll help you out. But it ended up going way way beyond that i mean by the time i I ended up having my own room my own place at the table my own parking spot they took me to church they took me to Tractor pulls to the country. Ooh, club. a tractor pull. A tractor pull. Have you ever been to a tractor pull? <laughs> oh, yeah. Pull? I'm from Walla Walla, Washington. I've been to a tractor pull. 
But they were, they were, they were, they were kind of when they gave me their blessing. When when the father Q Gosley gave me his blessing, it you could just the whole thing changed. You know, all of a sudden, you know, that's the way those small towns are. He was one of those people that if if you're all right, with yeah, you, if you're all right, right with him, that. you're all right with yeah. us. Yeah. But that's like you know your story on this one. This is why I can't wait to read this book it, is. Uh, it's just so fascinating about the the psychology of the mass psychology of a small town in 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 southern America, you know, in the land of the red state. You know, it's just uh, well, you know, the exact same story took place in Idaho back in about nineteen sixty five, sixty six. Similar. I can, I can remember something about yeah, that. Yeah, exact. And I was, of course, the, a kid at the time. I remember when it happened. The difference is, is Harry didn't take four years of his life and move to this. <laughs> he moves to the, you move to the town. Uh, have you gone, or you do go back, don't you? Did I see the? Oh, yeah. Back, I was back uh, a week, two weeks ago, tomorrow, was right. the 30th anniversary of McElroy's shooting. And they I go a, back. They have a, like, oh, they have a parade yeah, I was, was going to say, they have, like, yeah. you know, McElroy days with a, you yeah. know. Well, you know, one of, that's interesting because one of the questions I ask these people is, when is this event going to move into history so right. that you can look at it as a past event? You know, the way we look at World War II or even Vietnam now, it's, it's history. And uh, kind of the follow-up is, so you can have McElroy days, so you can reenact on like the Like the man who shot Liberty Valance. Yeah, or, you know, the OK Corral, all that stuff. Right. Um, they're a long, still a long way from from being able to look at it that way. The other fascinating thing that you did in your life so far is uh, you, you got out of map and took a dart and shot the dart into the map and moved to this Dover, Delaware town because that's where the dart ended up. And that was, uh, you had a big birthday, you know, one of the uh, ones with the zeros and said, that's right. what I'm going to do with myself. Right. How the hell do you do that? Boy, I envy you. Well, I rented my house. I got rid of my, uh, I broke up with my girlfriend, uh, adopted my cat out, um, closed all my bank accounts, said goodbye to my family and got on the bus and went. I basically was bored, you know. I guess, um, huh? <laughs> bored and kind of like I was getting this. It's a sixty-year-old thing. I was getting this feeling like, like I'm missing stuff. You know, I've got this this kind of narrow little thing that I look down life at, and it's kind of repeating itself, and it's safe and secure and so forth. But you know, what, where does that get you? You know, what uh, else no, is no, out? What I'm with you, but but you pick. It turned out to be Dover, Delaware. <laughs> yeah, it's a glutton for punishment. It was punishment. Uh, there's something did, about did Delaware. Too, I, I never go, did like that town. I mean, I, I to this day, I don't like that. Didn't town. you think of maybe shooting that dart two out of three times and see what you found? <laughs> <laughs> my God, you, you could have picked my hometown of Waysburg, Washington. To make this about me, you could have picked my hometown of Buffalo. You would have done a little better there. <laughs> and that's not doing so good. And I love my hometown, but nobody else does. But, oh so, so when you hey, do they still have the statue of O.J. Simpson up there? You know, I, I think my brother bought it. It's in front of his house. It, uh, the answer to that is I don't know, but I'm going to bet uh, no. You know, at the Palm Restaurant here in, in West Hollywood had this big mural. They they put the people's face, you know, they paint people's faces on the wall. In fact, mine's painted there because yeah, this I'm shows sure. about me. Yes. But, but, but uh, yeah, well, it is. That's three down. But, uh, you're keeping track. We're keeping yeah. track, yeah. yeah. And, and I just, I'm just i testing you at the yeah. end. Yeah. So, so, Harry, so they, uh, the big mural to O.J. Simpson. 
and uh, they've since the, you see the the body you know in the Count Lucas Tello's head in his yeah in his you know Buffalo Bills uniform, and they've replaced the head with some they on occasion change it up. <laughs> Stan Laurel. It's, it's not it's not yeah it's not OJ. Uh, but OJ still had the gravitas of you know before they nailed him in Vegas. He could walk around as a star. Go figure this thing. Yeah. This world is a crazy world, Harry. Well, that's why guys cutting, you know, after they get a divorce, somebody in the family cuts the the, the offending oh, out of the, party out, out of the, the wedding, photograph. Out of the wedding pictures. And yeah. All. Yeah. 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 I've like had it never that happened. happened. I've had that with me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's lots of photos that don't have Howard in them anymore. Well, I've my, done that. It, it doesn't have my face, but, you know, hell, it's good. I mean, that's back when I had a svelte body. You know, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> Put my face back that's, on that's there, four. You, you people. Yeah. <laughs> You may not like me. Five. So, uh, <laughs> Harry, what uh, uh, this 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 re-release of Once Upon a Time is, is going to do very very well for you. Of course, you've already had the movie on the other book. Do you have anything on the burner now? Well, I've just written. I've I've written the uh, prison. Well, what happened on the on the on the Dover thing? Yeah, I know you were going up. to prison. Yeah, yeah went back, to prison. Back, back to Dover for a second. How the hell did you earn a living over there? Well, that's what I did. I got a job as a prison guard. Oh. Uh, first, I got a job as a truck driver driving mail down the coast, and I had an accident and got fired. Uh, <laughs> which got I wasn't fired. too unhappy about. It was in the you middle throw, of the night. Did you tell them you threw a dart and they're lucky to have you? <laughs> they fired you? So they let a 60-year-old man go through correction officer training. There's nothing wrong with that, my friend. I'm not too far behind you. Come I was on. surprised. I mean, quite frankly, I you know I applied for it, and I thought, well, they'll you know they'll bust me out on the age thing, right. or they'll or they'll do enough research and find out these other books and wonder what I'm up to. But they didn't. Was it and a country club prison or was it maximum security? It was maximum. We went all. Wow. We, we had death row and the whole works there and the towers and everything. But you were undercover. I was undercover in the sense that they didn't know what I was doing. Um, and, I, and I didn't explain the, who the I prisoners was. or the, 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 the anybody. anybody anybody. They didn't know about the law degree or the books or anything. And I made up kind of a story about well, I was the personnel consultant, arbitrator sort of stuff, and. I, I kept the misrepresentation to a minimum, so I didn't trip myself. But up. when you but when you punched in in the morning, what would you do after? What was your job? Well, when you go in as a rookie, the, the scary thing is you go to wherever there is, you know, somebody sick or on vacation. So you go to to these posts where you don't know how things are supposed to work. There's a culture at each in each building, and the, the inmates know it and the guards know it. So you walk in there, and they look at you, and they're, oh, here's this white-haired guy. He's rookie. He's the entertainment for today and maybe tomorrow, too. Right. And they just have fun. I mean, they, they know where the line is. They know where you know when this door is supposed to be locked and not not locked and all that stuff. And, and you have to just stay cool, and it was, it was, that, it was, it was tough uh, because they're very smart, and a lot of them are very smart, and they're very provocative. And they know how to play these games. It's better than watching TV. Did you take? Did you, is there a story here to write? Is there? Yeah, it's done. It's, oh, I you just, did. Okay. I just I just finished it. Oh. And um, we're we're editing it now. It's it's turned into a memoir. Oddly enough, because mm-hmm. uh, you might remember a book called uh, New Jack by Ted Conover came out about 15 years ago, and he went in Sing Sing as a prison guard and mm-hmm. wrote a book about it. But he went home to his wife and kids every night and had a normal kind of structure. And okay. he wrote his as an adventure story. That's the way mine started. But then people started saying, you have to tell us who you are and why you did this. But once you start to do that, you start that, 
if you do that, it starts to become a memoir. So, so. Give, well, give us a little taste. What, give us some, some things to expect. Nobody will remember. They'll all buy the book. Don't worry about it. Well, basically, it's you know, it's it's the it's these issues of what's left in my life and how am I going to live it and has it been honestly led and all those sorts of things come to bear in the prison itself when I get into a. I don't want to say face-off, but into into a thing with one of the more violent prisoners there. Have you got a ti- do you got a title for this one yet? Well, we're calling it Prison Days and Memoir, but I'm sure when we sell it, the publisher will come up with a new title. How yeah. long were you prison guard? A year. Wow. That's enough. Yeah. Uh, you know, I look back on it these days, I can't believe I did it. I mean, I do not have the right personality mentality for that you know i mean well, i'll tell you who, who does uh <laughs> that is former inmates uh in my book i'll get a one plug for one of mine uh man overboard counterfeit resurrection of phil champagne which is a true story a former inmate of the shelton facility changes his name and comes back as a corrections officer in the same penitentiary oh that's a good one yeah i think i've heard about it. now I like um, this guy. Yeah, that was I'll tell you the book of yours that sticks in my head is that the killer inside me. Of, do I have the name right? No, that's uh, that's, that's the one I wrote. That's no, no. I think. <laughs> what, what was it about? Do you remember, Harry? Can we have you back? Sure, you bet. Oh, good, good, good. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Harry. Nice to meet you too, guys. We're out of time. Well, there, there's uh, some book I wrote that Harry likes. That's great news for me. <laughs> We don't know what it was, but it was what he liked. That's all I need to know. We'll have him back and find out which one of my books he liked. I'm going to Google it right now. I thought I had the name right, but anyway. Was it a true crime book? No, it was a novel. Oh, novel. Oh, well, that case of might have been The Killer Within or The Killer Inside Me or The Killer... No, I don't have any killers. I mean, I think you're probably thinking of Chuck Husmeyer. Anyway, we're all done for today. Thank you so much, Harry McLean. Once Upon a Time, available on your Kindle. Go buy several copies and read it simultaneously. Thanks again, Harry. Thanks a lot for having me. You bet. That was a great show. I really enjoyed that. He's a great guy. Really is. Beautiful day in sunny Southern California. Coming up next, Magic Matt Allen and the Demons of Decadence, including but not limited to... Ralphie, Johnny Cosmo, Howard Lapidus, Legendary Burl Bear. Maybe John Hill will show up. Oh, come on! I think there might even be a scorpion lurking around 6 or 7 o'clock tonight. We'll find out. Stay.